hello, Reality family and podcast listeners. Thank you so much for joining me as we continue to walk through Genesis 2. My name is John, and I have the honor of being one of the pastors at, at Reality and also bringing God's word to us today. Um, we are in the series on Genesis 2, where we've been looking in the past few weeks at what it means to be a human in this portrait. And we walked through that this morning at our Sunday gathering. We captured most of the audio, but unfortunately we had a few minutes at the very beginning where we missed out. So I'm just recording, re-recording this section for us, and then I'll pass you off uh, to the live audio. So we began this morning by looking at Genesis 2, starting in verse 4. The passage reads, In the day when Yahweh Elohim made the land and skies, and no shrub of the field was yet in the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord Elohim had not sent rain upon the land, and there was no human to work the ground. But a stream would go up from the land, and it would water the whole face of the ground. Then Yahweh Elohim formed the human of dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the human became a living being. And Yahweh Elohim planted a garden in Eden towards the east, and he placed there the human whom he had formed. And Yahweh Elohim caused to sprout from the ground every tree that is desirable to sight and good for eating, and the tree of life also in the middle of the garden, and the tree of the knowing of good and bad. And we skip down to verse 15. And Yahweh Elohim took the human and rested him in the garden of Eden to serve it and to keep it. And then verse 19, and Yahweh formed from the ground every living creature of the field and every bird of the skies. This is God's word. Well, last week we started to look at this question of what it means to be human, and we focused in on, on verse 7, which gives us a simple recipe of what it means to be a person or a human or a soul. And we looked at that passage says that we are div- dirt and divine breath, that we are made of these two elements. And we walked through the implications of this in three different areas. The first was for our identity. As humans, we are humble, we're dirt. Yet at the same time, we're amazingly glorious because we're given divine breath. We we looked at the implication for our bodies, that we are physical beings. We have a body, we are made from dirt, and yet we're spiritual as well. And then finally, we looked at our contingencies, that we are like God, yet we're very dependent completely dependent on God. And I said that anytime we get any of these things out of balance, which we often do, we distort the picture of what it means to be human. And that has disastrous consequences for us and for the rest of the world, as we'll see as we continue to read this story. So today I want to take what we talked about last week and and connect it to the rest of the passage. And as we do, I think some really fascinating, fascinating things pop out about the origins that we have specifically being of dust because in in verse 9 for example it says something else is created from the dirt of the ground as well it says and Yahweh Elohim caused to sprout, sprout from the ground every tree so the vegetation of the world is created in the same way that God is making it from the dirt and then we read this in verse 19 it says and Yahweh formed from the ground every living creature of the field and every bird of the skies so we are formed by God from the dirt. But the created world is also formed by God from the dirt. So the author is trying to signal to us that there is a connection. We're supposed to see that there is a connection between us and the created world. And then the last piece of the picture that we're going to focus on today is that humans, as God's image bearers, are given a special vocation in this connected world. Verse 15, and Yahweh Elohim took the human and rested him in the garden of Eden to serve it and to keep it, to serve it and keep it. 
So we see that if we're building on what we talked about last week, that we as humans, dirt and divine breath are connected in a network of relationships, intimately connected to the rest of the world. And we are given this special place within the cosmos that we are to serve and keep the world, not dominate or domineer over it or use it solely for our purposes. But we are to continue the work of God, creating a space that is optimal for shalom and for flourishing. But as I said last week, we can also get this recipe pretty off. We can get off balance. And that's what's happened, I think, in, uh, in and throughout human history in many different ways. So for the ancient Near Eastern people, the way that they would get this uh, recipe out of whack is that they would say nature is actually much more than just a common, having something in common with us as humans. It's actually uh, deified. And so they would raise nature up and push human beings down. And that could happen a lot of different ways in their cultures. So in some cultures, they would say nature is basically God. Or they would say nature is the home of the gods. There are certain places where God makes his home in nature. Or they would say that there are certain parts of nature that we can go, and if we can get them, we have access to the gods or we have access to magic. And so there's many, many stories uh, that include many of the, uh, the elements in the story that we read in Genesis 2. Sacred trees with fruit, or gardens, or mountains, or rivers. These are all sacred places that were shared uh, in the mythological stories of, of Israel's neighbors. And, and so um, they, they would deify nature in many different ways. And on one hand, for me, this is completely understandable, actually. Uh, last week, I, took a, uh, I was out on Bowen for a few days, and I, I did a hike there. Hiked up this mountain, and at the very top, you stand on these, um, there's two helicopter platforms on top of this mountain. One looks out to the west, so out uh, towards the ocean, and then one looks out to the east, back towards Vancouver. And it was just absolutely breathtaking and uh, caused me to have a sense of just awe and worship. It is a beautiful, beautiful place that we live in, and the world is beautiful. So I can actually understand that people would start to worship nature. Listen to what Jewish commentator Nahum Sarna says about this. Anyone who reads the Hebrew Bible, especially the book of the Psalms, is aware that the ancient Israelite was as struck by the majesty of natural phenomena as was any of his pagan neighbors, like many of us may be. But... Unlike them, he did not profess to see God within these phenomena. The clear line of demarcation between God and his creation was never violated. Nowhere is this brought out more forcefully than in the Hebrew Genesis account. There is no room for magic in the religion of the Bible. So, Genesis 2 is a pushback on its ancient neighbors, that the world is not actually a place that is deified. It is not God. It is very important. We are connected to it. Um, but it is not God in of itself. So in some ways, you could say Genesis 2 is demagicifying the world. It's trying to put things back in the right order where we are connected to our world, we have this special job and vocation within the world, uh, and we need to keep that balance. So that was what, the ancients had kind of maybe swung the pendulum to one side where they deified nature and they said his humans were pretty low. But what's happened over time, and especially in the last few hundred years, is we've flip, flipped that on the other side. We've said, oh, human beings are actually the pinnacle of creation, the most important thing, and nature becomes objectified and becomes nothing. Listen to how a Christian scientist named Lynn White says this in a very classic article. It's from the 1960s, so it's kind of like a little bit old wordy, but it's called the historical roots of our ecological crisis. Why are we in the crisis that we're in? 
Since both science and technology are blessed words in our contemporary vocabulary, some may be happy at the notions. First, that viewed historically, modern science is an extrapolation of the natural theology. And second, that modern technology is at least partially to be explained as a realization of the Christian dogma of man's transcendence of and rightful mastery over nature. So, this is written in a science periodical. Let me give a quick translation. Basically, what he's saying here is that science at least partially comes from Christianity. Because it says the world is not magic. It's actually ordered. God has created an order. Therefore, it can be studied. So we can, uh, we can study nature and we can gain an understanding of, of science or a scientific understanding of the world. And then secondly, that technology, the idea of technology that we can then apply what we learn to the world and create a new place uh, that we can actually manipulate the world comes from this idea that man has this elevated status within the world. But, he continues... As we now recognize what uh, somewhat over a century ago science and technology joined to give mankind powers, which to judge by many of the ecological effects are out of control. Fascinating. That's almost exactly what we saw Yuval Harari say yes, last week. If so, this is the key sentence, Christianity bears a huge burden of guilt. If this is true, Christianity bears a huge burden of guilt because it has taught us that we are superior to nature contemptuous of it, willing to use it for our slightest whim. To a Christian, a tree can be no more than a physical fact. What we do about ecology depends on our idea of the man-nature relationship. It depends very clearly on the Van Gogh picture that we have of what our world is. More science and more technology are not going to get us out of our present ecological crises until we find a new religion or rethink our old one. And I want to remind you, this guy is a Christian. But he gives this very depressing, but I think very true picture of what's happened over the last several hundred years, which is why we're doing what we're doing today. We need to come and rethink our paradigm to ask the question, does Genesis 2 have something different to offer us? And so in recent history, we've swung the pendulum to this other side where, where we as humans are kings and nature is just here to serve us. But, of course, living in a city like Vancouver, we can see that the pendulum has been swung back the other way. If we talk with most of our friends or people that we know, uh, the, the view of, of nature in Vancouver is something like it's deified once again. We should just get humans out of the way. And so the pendulum just swings back and forth and back and forth. So the question is, does Genesis 2 have anything to say to us that might actually help us to balance out and move ahead as people? And I think it does. And here's where I want to look again at verse 15. It says, And Yahweh Elohim took the human, and he rested him in the Garden of Eden to serve it and to keep it. Now, here's a few fascinating things that I learned about this passage this week. I don't, uh, I don't know Hebrew, but I was able to learn for some people who really do. And uh, so, the, the word that's here, serve, is the Hebrew word abad. abad. Now, in general, this word means to, to work, or to serve, or to care for. That's what the word can be used, the semantic range of this word. And the second word is the word keep. That word is the word shamar, so abad and shamar. And this is a preservation word. It's talking about guarding something or treasuring something or watching over something or keeping it. Now, that, those two words would be worth a cup of coffee and a long walk, just to think through what does that mean for us as humans. But there's one step further that I want to go, because these two words together in the Hebrew Scriptures are only ever used to describe one other group of people. So they're used here in Genesis 2, 
and then they're used again only for one other group of people in the entire scriptures. And that's almost all happens in the book of Numbers. And I know you guys all, you know, you read it, all of Numbers before you came this morning, so you're very familiar. But in case you didn't, let me just give you one example. Numbers 18. But you and your sons with you are responsible for your priestly duties to shamar everything at the altar and within the curtain, and you must abode. I give you the priesthood as a gift for service. So these words, abad and shamar, used together, are only ever used in one other way in the Bible, which is to describe the priests, the priesthood. And so Genesis 2 is trying to say to us that that is our job, that is our role here as, as humans, to be royal priests in this world. So what does that mean for us? Well, there's two things I want to talk about. The first one will be really, really quick. The first invitation I think about this is that we're invited to keep reading the story. We're invited to continue to read. Remember, this is one of the big goals of Genesis 1 to 11. It's giving us all of the motifs and the themes and the furniture for us to read the rest of the story. It's kind of like the table of contents. And so the idea is when you get to the book of Numbers and you're just like so bored and you're like, oh, this is just the worst. I'm ready to black out. We're supposed to see these words, keep and serve. And it's supposed to start sending our spidey senses off and being like, oh, I think I've heard that somewhere else before. Yeah, the first humans. There's a connection here, therefore, if in these really super boring passages of the priests, you know, just doing all these sacrifices and these weird things to what it means to be human. And it's supposed to make us reflect on our own lives and also to learn to hope for the true priest who will come in the future. And so that's what Genesis 1 to 11 is doing, is it's giving us the furniture for us to read the rest of the story. That's what it means when, when we talk about the Bible as meditation literature, that we're supposed to go forward and we're supposed to come back and continue to meditate so that our understanding of the story deepens and grows. That's the way the Bible works. And so that's the first invitation. So, you know, you can all go home and just read Numbers and throw Leviticus in there for, for fun. What a fun Sunday afternoon for all of you. But as someone who's redhead and doesn't want to spend the rest of our time reading Numbers and Leviticus this morning, I want to just take three things that it means, I think, for us. If we're going to take this whole recipe of what it means to be human and be part of this cosmos that God has created, that we're connected to, and take our job description seriously, what does it mean for us to be royal priests? Three things this morning. So the first is that priests receive creation as a gift. Priests receive creation as a gift from God. This is a quote from uh, Simon Oliver, who, who is uh, a Genesis commentator, and it's been just on tumble dry in my mind this whole week. God's gift to creation, God's gifts, sorry, to creation are never a matter of entitlement or right. To be a creature is first and foremost before all else to receive being. This is a unilateral gift from God. But to receive being truthfully, to be a creature, is to acknowledge this gift in thankfulness. He's saying our lives, according to Genesis 2, are a gift. And we can extend this metaphor to say the creation is a gift too. We are to acknowledge the gift of our lives, but also the gift of this world. It is a gift that is given to us from this very benevolent God in thankfulness. So it's inviting us into this stance of wonder, of awe, of praise, and of gratefulness. When we you know, climb the chief and we look down and we see just the beauty and splendor of this world, or when we read Genesis 2, or when we get one of these Hubble telescope pictures, it's inviting us into a place of thankfulness to receive this as a gift from God. 
And not only are our lives a gift, not only is creation a gift, but to be called priests is also a gift. That's what it says in Numbers 18. I give you the priesthood as a gift. It's a gift that we are called into this position to steward and care for God's creation. Gift, gift, gift. And I think one of the reasons that this um, quote from Simon Oliver has been on my mind so much this week is because I just realized how untrue that is of my stance, my general stance in the world. I think I treat this idea of being a priest more like, you know, a Kardashian doing community service. I'm just like, oh God, really? Um, my hip just like automatically just went out there. It was just totally... Uh, um, but that, I think that's, that's more like my, you know, my just general stance in the world is to say immediately like, oh, Really? I don't want to do that. And as a priest, one of the most important things we can do to start with is to to cultivate this sense of gratefulness. And I think this is such a key discipline for us as followers of Jesus in this moment right now. Not just me and my hips, but all of us. Listen to what Simon Oliver says. In our contemporary culture, we have no sense of what might be enough because unlimited human desire is taken as an unassailable given. We reap to the edge of every field and beyond. There will never be enough. There will always be a lack that creates anxiety and ever greater production of commodities that in turn generates ever more human wants. That is generally our stance in the world. And we're always faced that way. In fact, our culture just encourages us to face that way more, that you need more, that there won't be enough, that to have this scarcity mentality. And that works exactly the opposite of people who are grateful. Who can say, oh, there is enough. There is a God who's provided, and it's all a gift. And so part of what we need to do as people, part of why we're here this morning, is to counterform ourselves against the narratives of our world, which just continue to encourage us more, better, faster, and reform ourselves around this narrative of God, which comes in a position of gratefulness to say, thank you. Everything is a gift. My life is a gift. This world is a gift. And this calling to steward this world, is a gift to represent the God of the cosmos to the rest of the world. You know, one of the... This is one of the major roles of the Psalms and why they've been sung for generations and generations. And in my research of Genesis 2 and 3, this one psalm keeps coming up over and over again. Psalm 8, I'm just going to read it for us. When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is a human being that you remember him? the son of man that you look after him. We're just so small. We're like dirt. Very humble. Yet you made him a little less than God. You crowned him with glory and honor. At the same time, we have divine breath. And you made him the ruler over the work of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all the sheep and oxen, as well as the animals of the sky, the birds, or the animals in the wild, the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea that pass through the currents of the sea. He's noticed these little extra phrases that just show the attentiveness. This person has been sitting there and just watching. Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout all the earth. It doesn't sound like a person's like, yeah, now let's come and dominate all these things. The call is actually to make God's name magnificent among each part of his creation. As it says in other places, uh, other psalms, to make creation cry out 
that God is faithful, that God is magnificent, and God is wonderful. This is, this is the reflection of someone who has spent a lot of time meditating on Genesis 2 and 3 and then has looked at his world and sees it, not as we often see it, as something to be consumed, as something to fill a void with inside of us that I can get more of, more market share, more, more, more but rather as a gift that's been created by God. And then this person is just taking their priestly duty very seriously to make God's name more magnificent in the world and to lead others to do the same. That was the job of the priests, to lead the people in song. Not only to call it out in myself that the creation is a gift, but to call it out in others and to call it out into all of creation. So that's the first part, and I think it's just it's so key that we start there, that what we need to do is receive, see the world as a gift, see our lives as a gift, see this calling as a gift. And then we can move on to the second part, which is to abad and shamar, which is to actually do the work. To receive the gift appropriately and then to serve, to work, to treasure, to keep this world that God has given us. Now, how do we do this today? Well, this is difficult for two reasons. The first reason is because we live in a very different world. Um, so if you then then the early Israelite people. So if we go back and we read Numbers and Leviticus, we'll gain some information, but most of it is about serving in the temple. And so uh, some of that doesn't really apply to us today. We just live in a very different space and time. We live in a globalized, you know, industrialized world uh, that's um, facing a massive climate crisis like we've never seen before. And the second reason is because I'm not an expert in this area. So I'm not a scientist. I'm more of a scientist. And so I don't really know what we should be doing. But uh, in the heart of being practical, I want to introduce you to two other sources that I trust and I think are really helpful that can help us to gain some traction of, like, what, what can we practically do to Abad and Shamar in this world? So the first person uh, uh, is Catherine Hayhoe. She uh, is a Canadian Christian climate scientist. And uh, I've had, actually, the privilege of meeting her a few times. She's just an absolute wonderful person and uh, a hero for me. Um, and her job is to watch what's going on in the world, to look at the science and the data, and she said, without a doubt, the world is warming, and at least partially it's because of what we do as human beings. And so she says, uh, the most important thing that we can do as humans and as Christians is actually to talk about it, which is slightly surprising for me, but that's the name. She gave this TED Talk. It's been viewed over four million times. That's the name of this TED Talk. The most important thing you can do about climate change is to talk about it. And here's why she says it's such an important thing to do. The data is the data. She says it's been around for over 150 years. Throwing more data out there is not going to change anyone's mind. And so what we need to do is actually connect with people on values, on the values that they have, and the dangers of a warming planet, and connect those things together. So this is a quote from her talk. This is one way that she does it. For me, one of the most foundational ways I've found to connect with people is through my faith. As a Christian, I believe that God created this incredible planet that we live on and gave us responsibility over every living thing on it. And I furthermore believe that we are to care for and love the least fortunate among us, those who are already suffering the impacts of poverty, hunger, disease, and more. And as a Christian, I care about a changing climate because, as the military calls it, it is a threat multiplier. It takes these issues like poverty, hunger, disease, and a lack of access to clean water and even political crises that lead to refugee crises, and it takes all of these issues and it exacerbates them. It makes them worse. She's connecting the things that she values and hopefully some of us value to taking action. And so this is one thing that she encourages us to do, just take some time to talk about it. And maybe that's something in your community groups that you could do. Just listen to her TED Talk and talk about it. 
Talk about it with some people. So that's the first thing we can do is talk about it. And the second thing that we can do is to do something. And here's another organization that I think is really great called the Rosha. It's a Christian um, creation stewardship organization right here in Vancouver. Uh, you can check them out online. And they give kind of three categories of things that we can actually do to Abad and Shamar, to serve and to keep this world that God has given us. So they say live lighter, eat lighter, and save energy. I don't know why they couldn't get lighter in the last one, but... I say that as a pastor who does not alliterate my sermons, so I shouldn't be talking. But live lighter. Basically, the idea here is don't buy new things if you don't need to, or don't buy things if you don't need to. Live lighter. Don't travel as much. You know, if you can, if you need to go somewhere, walk, transit, car share, don't go on a cruise, don't, don't fly as often as you might want to. The second, eat lighter. Food waste. Minimize the amount of food waste that we have. Use less animal products. You know, you live in Vancouver. You guys know these things. Come on. Save energy. Go from a car to an electric car. Switch off the lights. You know, that's, that's it. For, for those of you who are wondering, that is a pastoral encouragement to buy that Tesla you've been waiting for. It's the Lord's will for your life. Um, switch off the lights. And, and even something as small as, like, boil the water with the lid on. It just uses less energy. Or use a kettle instead of a pot. There's so many little things that we can do to Abad and Shamar. And look, this is not a competition, okay? I'm not looking for someone to come back next week and be like, look, we canceled all our vacations. We sold everything. You know, I'm just walking barefoot. I'm a vegan walking barefoot in Vancouver with a jambe and a hair shirt just telling people about climate science. Like, that's, if that's you, that's fine. But that's not what I'm calling us to. I'm just asking you to take one step. One step in this direction to add one thing to your rule of life in this next season that might help you live into this wonderful and amazing call from God to steward this world that he's given us and to take this job that he's given us seriously. And here, here's my last encouragement to you. When I found in my life, when I do this, it opens up amazing avenues to talk with people about my faith. And let me just share very personally on that. Um, Genesis 2 is very clear, all of us are called to be priests, but it's also kind of in my job description. So when I tell people what I do, I'm like, oh, I'm a pastor. And they're not like, the general consensus for that isn't like, oh, tell me more about the Lord Jesus Christ and how can I be free from this sin that so easily entangles. Um, It's more like, hey, let's just shut this conversation down. And so uh, I've tried many different things to talk with people about Jesus. The most successful thing I've ever done in this city is to take this seriously. And when, we do, when I do in my life, it opens up amazing avenues. Let me give you one personal and then one communal ex- experience. So about 10 years ago, our family sold our car um, in, order, in large part to live into this. And uh, that means that I have to ask people for rides places, and one of the places is to hockey. So my friends that go to hockey with me, uh, they need to come pick me up if they want me to play. And so uh, I get to ride with them, and one of the most common questions they'll be is like, yo, don't you have like 19 kids? Don't you need a car? And like, actually, we've got rid of our car as a spiritual practice. And um, in those cases, they use the word Jesus Christ, just not in the way that we're all hoping. But they're like, it opens up doors to have conversations. For some of them, it's like, oh, weird. But for some of them, they're like, what? Because their idea is Lynn White's idea of what Christians do to the world. And I say, oh, actually, and, I'm, and it's not like I pull out a tract and I've been like, actually, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. I'm just like, no, it's, they're like, that's weird. I've never heard of that before. And I'm like, yeah, you know, for me, the story of the Bible, and I just basically go to Genesis 2. 
is this invitation to care for God's world. When I take my faith more seriously, it invites me to take this more seriously too. And, and some of them have uh, it's, it opened up conversations. I used to ride with one guy. He doesn't live downtown anymore. But I used to run, ride with one guy. This guy has like, made it very clear he's an atheist and he's not interested in changing his mind at all. But when he found this out about our family, his respect for, not, not simply just for us, but for God grew. He is way more open than he used to be. And again, he's not like, you know, how must I be saved? But he's more open and we have a really good friendship. And it's opened doors. The second thing I'll say is like communally, things that we've done together. So just on the east side here of, of the chapel, we have a, a rain garden. I was going to say, Mitch and the youth made this rain garden in partnership with another organization. I was just going to say it's a small thing that we've done, but Mitch may disagree. He'd be like, yo, that was a lot of work. Um, I didn't do any of the work, so I can't really say. But we have this nice little garden here on the side, and I can't tell you how many times I've wandered out there, and now Joel's made some great benches. Sorry, I thought Joel was up there. I don't know where he is. Joel's made some great benches right here that, that are out there. So I'll wander outside, and there will just be neighbors sitting out there or running their dogs out there, and they're like, hey, this is a you know, weird little garden, or tell, like, interesting garden, or thanks for the garden. I'll say, actually, this is one way we just live into our faith, to care for this world. I can't tell you how many conversations that has opened up with our neighbors, and how much goodwill that has bought for God in this neighborhood. And I, I say this because I know that some of you guys really want, have people in your lives you want to reach out to. I ask you, what, what do you want me to pray for? That's one of the most common prayer requests, and it's awesome. I'm so honored that, that you share that with me, and I'm so encouraged that that's part of your heart. I can't tell you more strongly enough, the most effective evangelistic thing I've ever done in this city is this. Is take this thing that our city cares so deeply about and live into it in, in light of God's story, and it just opens up so many more doors. I, and so if that's you, I just encourage you, put one thing in your rule of life. And don't flaunt it, right? That's not the point. It's just to do it and live into it and trust God that he will bring fruit from it outside of just our living into this story. Let me end here. There's one more thing. So if we're going to be people who are learning how to see all of this as a gift, to receive it as a gift, and then people who actually take steps to live into it, to Abad and Shamar, that's going to mean we have to give up something. It's going to mean sacrifice for us. We talk about this in our rule of life language. If we're going to embrace anything, if we're going to say yes to something, we're going to have to say no to something else. That's the way that life works. It's not like all of you are just walking around with like, oh, I just have all this bandwidth in my life. I wonder what I could do. Most of us feel full. Most of us feel busy. Therefore, to say yes to something, we have to say no to something else. We have to sacrifice. Now, thankfully, if you know a bit about the Bible story, this is probably one of the things that you, maybe the only thing that you know about the priests, the Israelite priests, is that they did the sacrifices. And when most of us think about sacrifice in the Bible, I think we think of a very specific kind of sacrifice, which is like, "Uh uh-oh, I did something wrong. So you kind of come to God with an animal and be like, take him, not me. Uh, That's kind of the idea. So it's like, I did something bad, and this thing needs to be sacrificed so I can be okay. There is truth to that storyline, But that's not where I want to go this morning. I want to focus on a different kind of sacrifice, which is a Thanksgiving sacrifice. And this sacrifice uh, was just done completely voluntarily from people. So it cost fine flour, fine oil. You had to bake a loaf with it. So it took time, and it cost you something. But you just brought it to God, not because you'd done anything wrong, but just because you were thankful. Just because you were grateful that... I have existence, 
that God has given us this world and he's called us on his behalf to be his representatives. And so I just come and say thank you. But in addition to this being a a, a nice gesture, in the ancient Near East it had another um, purpose or meaning. See, in most ancient cultures, which some of us are probably more familiar with than others, gift-giving is never a one-way affair. It's circular. So that means if, if, if you give me a gift, I am expected to reciprocate and give a gift back. And this seems really weird to those of us who are more Western-influenced, because we think of gifts more like what Jacques Derrida called the pure gift, pure gift sorry. which means that if, if you give me a gift and I give you something back, I've somehow ruined or polluted that gift. And that can happen. That can definitely happen. It can turn the gift-giving into bartering, We read about this in the Bible where the people are still giving sacrifices, but God's like, you're just trying to barter with me. Or it can be a system of benefacting, which we read about in the New Testament. So this this idea that circular gift-giving can be problematic is very true in the Bible, but that's not what it's supposed to be like. In ancient cultures, gift-giving is ultimately about building a relationship. And so if someone gives you a gift... They're trying to say, they're extending themselves to you. I I want to be part of your life. I want to be in relationship with you. And if you give a gift back, it doesn't have to be the same thing. Usually it's not. If they give you, like, you know, some oranges, don't be like, and now you can have the oranges back. That's not the way that it works. You think of something, and you give something back. And that's saying to that person in that culture, I want to be in relationship with you too. I value you as a person I want to be in relationship with you. And some of you are thinking of some cross-cultural relationships, and you're like, I think I need to give some gifts back. Because um, you've communicated inadvertently, maybe, that you don't want to be in relationship. And so in this way of thinking, a, sac- a Thanksgiving offering is something very small. We're not able to give something back like God has given to us. But it's an invitation to return the relationship, to complete the circle. It's a way of saying, I want to be in relationship with you. Your gifts to me say you want to be in relationship with me, and I want to be in relationship with you. And so this, for me, has been one of the ways that I, it's really changed the way that I think about um, this gift-giving and what God has given us, and even being thankful and returning that to God. That when I give something back to him, I am not simply just making an, an offering or that I'm not simply just making a gesture. I'm actually receiving his invitation. All the gifts that he gives us are an invitation to be enter into the divine life. Our lives is a gift. This world is a gift. The invitation to be his priests, his royal priests in this world, is an absolute gift to, the, to us. And on top of that, as for us living thousands of years later after the story was written, we have another set of gifts from God that we can be thankful for and celebrate. Through Jesus, through the gift of the Holy Spirit. We have the gift of this family of God, what we call church. We have a new creation through Jesus that we can be a part of, where we can be forgiven and restored to this call of humanity and re-engage in this call to be a priest. All of these things, when God gives them to us, are invitations from him into the divine life. It's God saying, I want you to enter into this life of mine, this triune life of mine, this infinitely merciful reciprocity, this self-giving love, this generous gift of God. And the invitation for us is not just to give us something back because we have to, but to offer to step into that relationship with God 
and the way that he wants to interact with you and this world. Let's pray to close. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for this, these gifts that you've given us. And again, I just confess personally, um, I am much more often faced in the opposite direction, in a scarcity mentality, in a direction of, of looking for and needing more, maybe wondering when the next shoe will drop. And so I pray that you would turn my heart, I just confess that, I pray that you would turn my heart towards your generous love and the gifts that you've given. May we be a group of people who turn that way. May you lead us to uh, live our priestly duty in this world. For each one of us, may we take on uh, that call and act in your world, and may you teach us how to sacrifice. May we see all of these gifts that you give us as ways that you're reaching out to us in this world to offer relationship to offer us to enter into this um, beautiful relationship that you have within yourself of self-giving love. And may we offer ourselves and our lives, as Romans says, as living sacrifices to walk with you into that and to uh, exhibit your grace and your wonder into the world. We pray these things together as your people. In Christ's name, amen.